Welcome to another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. Awesome. I'm going to read you a few quotes. And uh, some of you may have heard of these quotes, and, uh, and uh, yeah, and then we'll, I'll talk, go on to say what we're going to talk about tonight. So here's a few quotes. Even the weak become strong when they're united. Johann Christoph Friedrich von Schiller said that. It's my next door neighbor. So um, even the weak become strong when they're united. Unity, to be real, must stand the severest strain without breaking. Mahatma Gandhi, for the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Rudyard Kipling, men's hearts ought not to be set against one another, but yet but set with one another, and all against evil only. Thomas Carlyle, in union there is strength. Asop, we cannot be separated in interest or divided in purpose, we stand together until the end. Woodrow Wilson. Behold, they are one people and they all had the same language and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Genesis 11.6, talking about when the people got together and started building the Tower of Babel and God said, if they are so unified that they're going to... They're going to build this thing, and we need to do something about it. By union, the smallest states thrive. By discord, the greatest are destroyed. Solost. There are no problems we cannot solve together, and very few that we can solve by ourselves. Lindod uh, B. Johnson. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133.1. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure um, permanently half slave and half free. Abraham Lincoln. Whatever disunites man from God also disunites man from man. Whatever disunites man from God also disunites man from man. That is a very powerful thought right there. Edmund Burke. Honest differences of views and honest debate are not disunity. They are the vital process of policy making among free men. Herbert Hoover. We must all hang together or assuredly we shall all hang separately. Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Philippians 4.2. We come to reason, not to dominate. We do not seek to have our way, but to find a common way, Lyndon B. Johnson. Even though this is late in the election year, there is no way we can go forward except together and no way anybody can win except by serving the people's urgent needs. We cannot stand still or slip backwards. We must go forward now together, Gerald Ford. Tonight I want to talk about unity, about the power of unity and uh you know i've played on a we can have unity in 
we see unity at work in many different ways. And, you know, in a family, in our workplace, in, in a business, in, in a school, there can be so many, you know, places where unity can take place. And, and when you have unity in your family, your family is healthy and it grows and, and people help each other. When there's unity in a workplace, the workplace environment is great to work in. People are loving their job. They're encouraging one another. It's successful. When there's disunity, the whole thing, people are going, I hate going to work. Because this person's going to say that and that's going to happen and the environment becomes toxic. Schools can have great unity, succeed and do great things. A church can have incredible unity and God does amazing things through people of God who are unified. And so unity is very powerful and God loves unity. I've played a lot of uh, sporting teams, and I remember uh, one time that playing on a team and uh, touched football probably 15 years ago now, and uh, we, um, we were playing in an A-grade men's competition, and uh, we didn't have all the best players in the competition. We could play uh, okay and play well, and there's a team we were playing against and uh, who had some very gifted players in the team, um, individually, they could play very well. And at the start of the season, we'd play against the team and we'd get beaten 10-2, 10-1, sometimes 12-1, and, and they'd beat us convincingly, but they were totally relied on their individual talent. And so this team had a, a team of incredibly talented players, some who represented our area and some who represented Queensland and, uh, and in under, you know, under 20 years old and things like that. And so they were very talented, and so, you know, but there was individual talent would score them tries. And so out, throughout the year, though, our team worked very hard. We trained and we worked very hard and we were a team, didn't have all the talent, but we began to gel together with unity. And we worked very hard at our defense. And so by the towards through the season, the score line when we played this other team was getting down to you know six nil or six one or six two and then be four two or whatever. And the gap was getting closer and closer and by the time we came to the end of the season the finals we're versing this team uh, in, a, in, a, in the finals we got to a grand final against them and a couple of last games would be fairly close and they had just totally relied on their talent the whole season and their individual talent but we had worked so hard together that our defense had become so good that when now these players that were talented couldn't get through our defense because we weren't how to work together we learned to talk to each other. We, we, would, we, would knew, we knew where, where the person was. We'd say, you go left, go right. And we'd, we're like one line. They couldn't get through. And what happens is those players that were so talented get very frustrated. And when they can't, when they, when they do, they thought, no, we beat you. We can, we'll beat these guys. And suddenly their talent didn't work. Their individual talent didn't work. If they'd have worked together and played as a team, they would have wiped every turn. They would have thrashed us 20 nil. But they totally relied on their individual talent. So they get frustrated. And when you get frustrated, then you start arguing against each other. And so then they're suddenly, they're, then they, the pressure comes on. They're getting frustrated. And they start dropping the ball. They start telling each other off. And they're fighting and yelling against each other in the grand final. And we won the grand final. Simp, now, we didn't have all the most talented players. But we, we learned to work together in unity. And you know what? In, in life, if you try and do it yourself, you'll get frustrated. 
You're t- if you try and just, oh, I'll do it myself, I don't need other people's help, I'll just I'll do it my way or whatever, and I'll, I'll do this, whatever, you'll get very frustrated, and you'll start to get annoyed at people around you because you're trying to do it your way, and when they try and help, no, 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 I want to do it my way, and you'll get very frustrated and annoyed at yourself. But when we come together and work in unity, incredible things happen. Though you can have not the most gifted people, not people with all the most talent, but when you work together in unity, you will be better than someone who just relies on their own individually or a whole team of people that rely on their own individually. You will beat them eventually because unity is much stronger than an individual person trying to do it their own way and not someone who's not wanting to work together. And that's why Jesus, when what the, basically the longest prayer he prayed for the disciples and for us, basically was about unity. The longest prayer in the Bible that he prayed was about unity. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read the last half of it. And it's found in John 17, 20 to 26. And if it's the longest prayer he prayed and and deliberately prayed these things, then he knew how important it was and how important unity was to the disciples at that point in time for what was about to happen. And he also prayed for us in the future. He includes us in this prayer even to this day. He includes us, everyone who's in the future, because he said it's just going to be just as important then as important as it is today. And so in John 17, 20 to 26, it says this, I am praying not only for these disciples, meaning the ones that were around him, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. Now he's talking about himself and his heavenly Father. Just as you and I are one, he prayed that we'd all be one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me wherever, where, where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. A righteous father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. Now, there's, there's some important things that Jesus says in the, on this. And, it's, and one of them is these two lines here I want to read. And it says, and may they be in us so that, and may they be in us so that the world will believe You sent me, and may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you as they love me. The the powerful thing that Jesus is saying there is this that one of the ways the world is gonna know that the Heavenly Father loves them is because of how much we as the church love each other. And how much unity we show together. So when we're unified, Jesus is saying that if you're unified and you are together, caring for each other, loving each other, you're a family, the family of God. When the world sees that, and it's talking about people that aren't yet Christians, that aren't believers. When they see that, 
it's going to be evidence to them that they're going to say, God, God, must lo- God must be real for them, all those people to get on together. Because it's amazing. I've had people um, you know, come to say, it's amazing. You know, they've walked into church or seen a group of people and they, and they think, it's amazing that all you guys can just get on well together. Like, it's amazing that you have all these different backgrounds. They walk in, the nationalities and ages and, ba- and all this kind of stuff. And like, how do you, is there any fights? You know, is there any, like, is there a few punch-ups in the car park every so often? Not too many. And so, just occasionally. And um, we have security for that. And so, and so, but they're amazed. And that's exactly true what Jesus is saying. He's saying that, when, you, when the love, it, it goes beyond cultural background, backgrounds. It goes beyond, you know, color of skin. It goes beyond, you know, age. It goes beyond nationality. It, it breaks through all that stuff. And when there's love for each other and the unity we have for each other because we're part of Christ, it's like Jesus gels us all together. The love of God gels us all together. And it's a witness to the world that God loves them also. And it also says that they will believe then also that Jesus was sent by the Father God. He was sent by God to die for them. He says, they will believe that you sent me. They'll go then, well, if God loves me, then they'll suddenly get a revelation that Jesus came and died for me. He was sent for me as well and it actually draws them to Jesus. Our unity as believers will cause the world to know they're loved by God, and to believe that Jesus was sent for them. So our unity, I've got three points tonight, our unity is for the benefit of those that aren't yet Christians. And that's why it's so important. That's why Jesus spent, prayed this prayer, and he, and he said, repeated himself many times. He's saying, guys, this is important. He was saying, this is important. This, what I'm praying is so important because it's going to depend. This, what, what happens with unity will affect the rest of humanity for the rest of the generations to come. It's going to be the same through every generation. Now, I'm not speaking about unity because I think we need to talk about unity because we've got no unity in our church or anything like that. Unity is something you have to work on every day. Unity is not something that we've made it. Cool. Awesome. Kick that off. Mark that off. Unity, done. Okay, we're all good. Uh, everyone's unified. Yep, good. And then until someone says something to you the next day, and they're like, well, I don't want to talk to that person. And then, oh, we got this unity. Quick. Need to do another four-week message on unity. Four weeks preaching on unity. Now, unity is something that we need to work on individually in our own lives. And we, we you know, you do it at church. But it's, we talk about it tonight at church. But really, it's something you need to live out. And not just in church life, but in your workplace, in your family, in your, in your school, in your, wherever it may be. Unity is so important. It's something that needs to be worked on. We need to be reminded about it. It's something that doesn't just happen. It's something that you have to be aware of and working at in your own life. Unity. The second point I want to talk about is that unity brings God's blessing and everlasting life, the Word of God says. In Psalm 133, 1-3, and I, talk, I mentioned a part of this earlier, it says how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers, and that's talking about men and women, that means in the church, live together in harmony or unity. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. 
Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. Now those two pictures there are powerful pictures. It's talking about the anointing on Aaron's beard. It's about talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the Jew, and when you see Zion mentioned in the, in the Bible, it's talking about the church. And the Jew is also in reference to the Spirit of God falling. And so it's saying unity or harmony is as precious as the anointing of the Holy Spirit that comes. And I would say that when, and we've seen it happen in services, that when we, are to, when we have unity... Especially when we're worshipping and praising God, when there's a unity together in worship, the presence of God comes much stronger. And the anointing of God falls in the place and it's almost like you can't move. It's like this, this Jew almost falls in this place and it's like you just sort of... And that's, that's what it means. It's, it's what happens. Because God loves unity. And it says, and there, it then goes on and says, the Lord has pronounced or has commanded his blessing. So when that happens, he, says, I, he doesn't say, oh, you might be blessed. He says, I command or I pronounce blessing when there's unity. And he says, even life everlasting or even everlasting life. So God sees unity. He sees people coming together and he says, it's so powerful. It's like my anointing. It's as powerful as my anointing when you have unity together. And he says, it's that place, that group of people, when they're unified, I pronounce blessing, 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 blessing. Not on one person, but on every person. Every person that's unified. Now, whatever the number of people may be, but there's a blessing that comes. So unity brings God's blessing and everlasting life. And our unity is also for the benefit of those that yet not yet Christians. The third point I want to spend a bit more time on is this. Uh, humility and servanthood lead to unity. I um, Recently, earlier this year, we were talking with the young adults and we talked about as a as, the, as part of our culture of young adults, we have a phrase um, we talked about this year, and it's simply this, we lead in the city, and, but together we are family. We lead in the city, but together we are family. Let me explain what, what we mean by that. When, when you're together with family, you know, say you're having a Christmas dinner or something like that, and you have... Everyone, all the family comes over and you can have people come in your family that could be of high position. They could be, have a high position in jobs. They could be managers. They could be, you know, all kinds of things that operate, CEOs of a company or something. You could have someone there that just, you know, doesn't do, you know, might have a job at all. They might just um, work at home with the, with the kids and they have full-time mum at home busy doing housework or whatever, and, and which is just as busy as a CEO probably. And so... And, and it's probably busier. And so you have all these people of all different positions. You have kids and elderly people and, and all this stuff. And they can be all coming over for Christmas dinner. And when you have Christmas dinner, it's not like the CEO walks in. Remember, we're, all we're talking about related family, okay? Walks in and sits at the head of the table and goes, okay, all you guys, serve me. Serve me. I'm the CEO. I'm the most important person here. And I can see the mother throwing a bit of cake in his face. And so, and so, so that doesn't happen. Because we're family. And so family can look like this. We come in and the guy with the important job doesn't matter anymore because we're family. We're hanging out together. So he's in there. If the dishes need to be done, 
he's in there doing the dishes. If, he's, if you need to cut up the meat or whatever, if you need to serve, he's in there doing that. And, what, and the person that, you know, least important, they might be sitting at the table, they might be doing this job or that job. And so it doesn't matter what you're, nothing is too hard when your family, your position or who you are doesn't matter as much because we're family. And I want to tell you, and I talked about this with our young adults, that when we're together, when the church is together, we're family. And yes, we have positions. Yes, we have leaders. Yes, we need to have that to operate and do those things. But nothing's too hard for a leader to do something that someone else could do. Nothing's too hard for one of the leaders. If the toilet needs cleaning, well, we'll just go clean the toilet because we're family. Because we're family. And so, but in the city, we lead in the city. In other words, every one of us, no matter your position at a ch- where you've got a leadership position at a church or something like that, when we're in the city, we're leaders in the city. No matter if I've been a Christian for a couple of months or for 10 years, in the city you lead others because you're the example of Jesus to those around you. You lead others in the city. And any one of us, all of you here tonight that are sitting in this place, when you walk out these doors, let me tell you, God has ordained you he's said to you you're to lead in the city it's your job to lead in the city be an example of Christ to those around you that's all you need to do and whether you're working as a teacher or whether you're whether you're meeting in a mum's group because you're you're a stay-at-home mum or whatever but you get together a group of ladies and and hang out with the kids or whatever uh, or go to wherever it may be you can lead that group you can be, lead your workplace you may not be the boss but you can still lead by what you say your attitude by what you do and you can shine Jesus to everyone around you together we are family nothing's too hard but we lead in the city. So thinking about that, I started to think about Jesus, who is the greatest example of humility and servanthood we can see. And I want to read a story that illustrates this very clearly. In John 13, 1 to 17, it talks about a story about Jesus is with his disciples. And I want to begin to read it to you. And as I read it, I want to pull out some points about what was going on here. And it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. So this is not long before Jesus was going to be crucified. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Just just remember that thought for a moment. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, that, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Now, I did a little bit of research on some of these things that Jesus did. And so he took off, there was an outer garment that he took off. And basically he was left uh, with like a, uh, like a tunic, which was a shorter garment and like a long underskirt that he was wearing. And it's, but he took off his outer garment. By doing that, it's exactly the same clothing that slaves would be dressed in to serve a meal. So Jesus dressed himself like a slave. And they, all his disciples would have known this. And Jesus tied a linen cloth around his waist, which wished to dry their feet. Obviously not 
what one would expect a master to do. And a Jewish text says that this is something a Gentile slave could be required to do, but not a Jewish slave. So even Jesus even went further, because even a Jewish slave wouldn't even wash, do the feet or do that type of work that, that, that he was about to do. But a Gentile slave would. So he was then painting a picture saying, what I'm doing is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well, which is us. And so he does that and he takes that off and they were looking at what is Jesus doing? He looks like a slave. And he gets a basin of water and it says, Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And what we need to realize is this, that he knew that Judas was going to betray him very soon. And if you read into it, the, the thought had already been put into his mind. The thought had been already put into his heart. It says that, that, um, that the devil had already prompted Judas. In other words, he placed the thought in his heart. Like, the, you know, there's like a bit of a pattern to temptation. You get a thought placed in your heart about temptation. And then you can, you can if you deal with it there, it's the weakest. But if you let it just sit there and you begin to act upon it, it gets stronger and stronger. The temptation gets stronger and stronger and stronger until suddenly you go, like, how do I get out of this? And so he had this thought that, oh, yeah, I'm, I can betray Jesus. They're going to give me some money. I can, I can do this. And he had this thought in his mind. And so what we need to realize, though, is that Jesus came even knowing that Judas was going to betray him, and he came and washed Judas' feet. He washed his feet knowing that he was about to betray him, knowing that he was going to send him to the cross, basically. Jesus also said, earlier he said, everything that I do, I only do what my father does. In other words, he said that to them earlier. And so he, what he was also showing is that when I wash your feet, I'm also, it's like Father God is also washing your feet. And the love that I'm showing you right now is the same love that my father shows you right now as well. And when he, you can imagine when he's showing that love to Judas, who's going to betray him, even Father God was saying, Judas, I still love you. I still love you. And so he begins to wash their feet. And when Jesus came to Simon Peter, he was a little bit stubborn, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Like, are, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing. But someday you will. No, Peter protested. No, you're not washing my feet. You will never, ever wash my feet, he says. He's like, he's going, you're Jesus. You're the son of God. You, you shouldn't be doing this. But you see, Peter's heart still had some hardness to it. Still had, he didn't understand the, the humbleness and the humility that Jesus had and the love that he was about to show Peter. And so Peter's heart was still a bit hard and he was still working through some stuff. And he's like, no, no, you, that's, you shouldn't be doing that. He wouldn't have cared if someone, one of the other disciples, you know, were washing Jesus' feet or something like that. But Jesus, you shouldn't be doing that. And Jesus replied to him and said this, Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Unless you let me wash your feet, Peter, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well. <laughs> In other words, just, just wash everything. 
because I want to belong to you, Jesus. I still don't agree with what you're doing, but I want to belong. And he says, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. He's then referring to Judas again. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. The other thing about this, what Jesus is doing, I just want you to put yourself in their world for a moment. They, before they had a meal like this, they would all go and have, um, they would go to their homes or whatever and have a shower bath or wouldn't have a shower, uh, weren't invented yet. And so, um, and, um, and they had to you know, have a bath and get washed, but then walk then to a building and, you know, and they'd have sandals on so their feet would get dirty. But those roads weren't bitumen. They were dirty and dusty and animals walked on them and all that kind of stuff. So the roads were covered in all kinds of animal stuff uh, on the roads, mixed in with the dirt, mixed in with the dust, and they would just walk through it. And get, you know, they'd be all, their, their feet would be pretty dirty and pretty dusty by the time they get there. And here's Jesus kneeling down with a basin and washing their feet of all the junk, of all the dust, of all the dirt, of all the animal poop that may have been stuck to his, their feet. And nothing was too hard for him to do that. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Now, Jesus wasn't, some people do have a, I know in, they do have a feet washing ceremony and different things at different times of the year. And the, but he wasn't actually saying, I want you to go and wash physically. He was really saying, I want you go, to go and show love and humility and servanthood the same way I have just shown you love, humility and servanthood by doing this act. He could have done any other act as well and he would have said the same thing. But he's saying, now I want you from now on to do the same thing I have just done to everyone else. He set an example. It was also he showed an example of what was about to happen on the cross where he humbled himself. He could have called down 10,000 angels if he wanted to in one word and got himself off that cross but he allowed them to crucify him because it was the Father's plan from all along before time. And so he willingly allowed himself to be crucified and he humbled himself as a servant and was crucified on the cross. And this was an example of what he was about to do. But he was about to do the cross was not just for the disciples, but it was for all humanity. This was just for them. And he said, I'm showing you love. I'm showing you the love of the Father. I'm showing you that I'm your servant, that I'm humble. I might be the Son of God, but I'm also, I want to show my love for you. But then he goes and shows the love to the rest of the world by dying on the cross. 
the community Jesus had brought uh, into, into being is to, is to manifest the love of the God and has revealed through serving one another. So he was creating there a community of people with those disciples of serving one another with no hint of pride or position. There will be recognized positions of leadership within that community, but the exercise of leadership is to follow this model of servanthood. And so Jesus was, had set up a community right there saying, this is how it needs to be. This is how I've set it up to be. You'll be you can be leaders among you. Leaders are going to grow up. Peter's going to become a leader. He hadn't said that yet, but there was others that were going to lead. And, but they were to serve just as much as anyone else, no matter of their position. Because together they are family. And they lead in the city. And through this one act, you imagine, because some of those disciples still didn't, there was a few frustrations, a few, you know, fights here and there, and this happened and that happened. But through that one act, Jesus wiped out every excuse of pride, cut down every bit of pride, cut down every, like, I'm better than you, I'm better. And then no one could say that anymore because Jesus just sat down and washed their feet who was the greatest leader, who was the son of God, who they looked up to and, and they're like, well, if Jesus washes my feet, then I, then I have to wash that guy's feet too, who I don't get on well with. Or I have to go and show the same kindness to someone else. So he set an incredible example. And what it did is it brought them all together in unity in one act to cut down every other excuse for not being unified. Ephesians, does the team want to come up? The band want to come up? Ephesians 4, 3 to 6 says this, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. He clearly says there it's one. Unity is God's plan. So there's, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're three in one. They're three persons in one. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit thinks the same as Father God. Jesus, the Son of God, thinks the same. They all, they all think the same. They have the same thoughts. They act the same. They, they love the same. They're three in one. They're unified as one. And... Jesus is clearly saying that he's the head of the church and he wants us to be unified as one under Christ. And to do that, to live that out, do it with servanthood, do it with humility by serving each other where nothing is too hard. And he did the lowest of lowest things you could do, which in those days was to wash someone's feet. And he said he just did the, he did the lowest job possible that a slave would do to show that nothing is too hard, nothing is too lowly for you to do. Whatever needs to be done, do it. Whatever needs to be done, do it together. Show unity, show love for each other because then the world will know that they are loved by me. The world will know that they are loved by a Father God who created them and loves them, they will know that He sent 
his one and only son to die for them. And our world and the message has not changed from 2,000 years ago. It's exactly the same. And the same unity will draw people to Jesus when we live it out together. Look at this last quote that I read uh, this afternoon, which was, I thought was great. The gospel is a life to be lived and not just an ideal to be contemplated. The gospel is a life to be lived and not just an ideal to be contemplated. Gospel, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, what he did, living it out, living out our faith is not something that we think, oh, that's, that could be a good idea or I'll think about it for a while. It's actually, you've got, to, you've got to live it out. You're going to think, oh, that's a good idea. I'll keep that on the side and keep doing what I'm doing. But we'll just keep that there just to, and I'll maybe turn back to it every so often as a reference. No, it's something that you live out. The gospel is something we live out. Our salvation is something we live out. The life that we have in Jesus Christ is something we live out. We show it by our actions. We show it by what we do. We show it by what we say. Why don't you stand to your feet tonight? Stay tuned for another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church.